Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 3rd of July. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Robbie. And Craig, just to tell the viewers, we are broadcasting from the heart of the leper colony of Australia, yep, Victoria, right. and right in the middle of the lockdown um, suburbs, but we're okay. Unfortunately, we are also able to broadcast to viewers in both Adelaide and Melbourne due to a last yes. minute reprieve, by uh, lit literally almost a last minute reprieve by the Federal Communications Minister, so they'll be on air for another 12 months. So Channel 31 viewers and Channel 44, Channel, Channel 31 in Melbourne, Channel 44 in Adelaide, you've got us for another 12 months. Tell everybody the good news, right? Spread uh, the word. Citizens got, Party's still live on TV. And I think it's also important, Robbie, to know that sometimes we have an extended version of this program, which is available on YouTube. So, you know, if people are, can't happen to miss a program on 31, go to YouTube and watch it there. Actually, Craig, last Friday, after, last Saturday, <laughs> I bumped into a person at the market who introduced himself as a Channel 31 viewer in Melbourne and he uh, kindly told me I look fatter in real life. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was able to tell him what you just said. Yes, if you, he, he, he told me he, he books, the, he, um, he sets aside the, the time on, which is late on a Friday night in Melbourne here, uh, to watch the show. If you don't want to wait that long, because there's also a bit of a, almost a week's delay in the yeah. show, subscribe on on YouTube, and as I said last week, click the uh, the bell icon so you get the notification when each, each new shows up, which is usually by Saturday evening after we've recorded the program. Yep. Because of course we have a wonderful production team behind the scenes here, which you never see, and they make um, a silk purse out of a sow's ear. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speak so, for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that said, um, I, there's one another thing just before we get started in the main part of the program. We are in the middle of this campaign to get submissions made to the Senate uh, Economics Legislation Committee inquiry into Senator Malcolm Roberts' bill to amend the bail-in law so it cannot be used to, to bail in deposits. And as we reported last week, we've got, um, we've got uh, Tim Wilson, the federal member for Goldstein, liberal member for Goldstein, has done us a huge favour because in his arrogance he's come out and basically admitted, yeah, deposits can be bailed in which goes completely against what the government claims, that no, it can't, and it proves there's a confusion. Um, uh, the economist Mark, uh, John Adams and banking expert Martin North did an episode of this on their show just the other day on the Interest of the People channel, which I do recommend people watch. Um, it's called Coalition MP Let's the Cat Out of the Bail-In Bag. And they make the point that... Um, uh, Tim Wilson is not just a member of parliament, he's actually the chair of the Economics Committee of the parliament. So he should know when he says, yes, deposits can be bailed in, right? Um, so this is a real problem for the government here. And the only way they can resolve this is pass the bill, right? The bill clarifies it all. It, there's, there's obvious confusion in the government passed the bill. So we need you to make those submissions. You've got until next Friday, the 10th of July, to do it. If you haven't done it yet, get, get out your computer, type up a submission, just, just a letter to the, to the, um, to the uh, inquiry, um, all the details are on our website. Make, send, send it off to them and, you know, with the message you've got to pass this bill, right? Okay, because what we're about to go through now reinforces that. So the first subject today is banks on a gambling binge with our deposits. And second, who owns Australia's farmland? So banks on a gambling binge with 
our deposits. And the main thing we want to report on this is that every quarter, the Reserve Bank releases new figures on total derivatives contracts held by Australia's banks. Um, and in the last quarter, which, for which figures are available, which is the, the, uh, the quarter ending end of March, the derivatives of Australian banks hit an all-time high of $53.2 trillion. And that's a $7.5 trillion jump just in a quarter. Now, that is 25 times bigger than Australia's economy, what the banks hold in derivatives, right? This is huge money. And, of course, the only thing that, that, that dwarfs it is what America's banks hold, what, what the global derivatives market is, right, which is well over a quadrillion dollars. So these, what are these things? What are derivatives? Well, derivatives are gambling bets. And that's what you've got to understand. When banks are trading in derivatives, they're betting and they're betting with your money. They're betting with my money. If you've got money in the bank, banks are betting with them. Right? That's because the entire economy has become a, a casino because of the enormous amount of speculation within it. These things are considered normal, but in fact, prior to the 90s, they were actually illegal. They were. They were illegal in... Um, most countries had uh, with anti-gambling laws up to the end of the 80s um, included derivatives in those anti-gambling laws, yeah. right? Because they're bets. Now, there are specific types of bets. I want to spend a little bit of time explaining this um, just so people get a bit of an insight into it so you don't just think, you know, they're not completely mysterious. Um, they're bets on mainly three things. Interest rates, whether they go up and down. Exchange rates, which is currencies relative to each other, right? Currency exchange rates. Or indices, so the stock market, commodities markets, etc. But they're often combinations and very complex combinations of all three, right? So very many, many moving parts. And they, t they, they literally take rocket scientists to calculate these things, right? They get the best mathematicians from the universities and get them to cook up crazier and crazier derivatives. And the trading in this robbery happens with supercomputers. Yep. At not just, you know, minutes or, you know, several minutes, but fractions or I mean, microseconds exactly. trading. So that these things can be traded many, many times within a second. Oh. And it's got nothing to do with human beings. It's all done. And only the computers can calculate um, the, the exposure of these things as well, right? So what's this got to do with the real physical economy? Next to nothing. It's all gambling. It's all speculation, as we said. Yeah, th this is a way for banks to make money from the, um, the m most of what banks normally do, Craig, which is supposedly to, you know, provide credit to help activity in the real economy. Um, banks aren't, haven't done that for years. In fact, banks are a net drain on that. They, they're, they're looting that part of it. And the way banks pad out their profits is this way. And I just want to, because I want to I wanna explain that. Um, uh, before I do, uh, in Australia, one of the scandals we have here is Australia's banks do not expose or, or, or disclose their individual derivatives. And this started in 2012 with the Commonwealth Bank. They were the first to stop disclosing their derivatives. And now none of the big banks or virtually none of the big banks disclose them. I remember when, in, when it happened in 2012 and we, we're seeing the Commonwealth Bank's annual report and there's no derivatives in there. I, I called them up and I got put through to the top floor, right? And, and a couple of guys on a, on a speakerphone are talking to me. And I said, why aren't you disclosing your derivatives? And they went out of their way to try and say, oh, no, no, nothing to see here, mate. Nothing to worry about. And I remember they used this term, oh, look, these are not like those derivatives that just caused the meltdown in the global financial system in America. These are plain vanilla 
derivatives. That's what they called them. And I said, well, if they're plain vanilla, why are they rising so fast? What, what possible action, what do, they, what do they track in the real economy um, that would make them rise so fast? Right? And of course, they're, they're, not, they're rising so fast because they're, a, they're trading derivatives. They're not just plain vanilla hedging and banks are making money out of them. Right? But they're making money at the expense of the real economy. And um, some regular viewers might remember last December, Dr. Wilson Sy, the former principal researcher at APRA, attended the National Australia Bank's annual general meeting in Sydney, and he got up, we played, we played the clip of it, um, uh, he got up in the AGM and asked NAB about why they don't disclose their derivatives, and all they did was obfuscate and go, oh, blah, 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 you know, you know, um, uh, uh, you know um, nothing to see here again, right? But this is a, this is a big scandal which, which people have to pay attention to, especially when you see them rising so fast. Now, one of the real problems with derivatives, Craig, is that they are instruments of fraud. And they actually are. So, some, so plenty of them are technically legitimate. But um, just on a basic level, one of the things derivatives can be used for is to get around regulation. So a, reg, the, a, a very proper regulation would say banks aren't allowed to do this. And banks want to do that because there's profit to be made in it. So they'll, come up, they'll, they'll invent a derivative that allows them to get around that regulation, which seems legal on paper, except they're, they're, they're avoiding the law, right? Um, so they can be used for that. They can also be used to hide losses and in some cases make losses appear profit. And in, in profits. And in this book here, Fiasco, Blood in the Water on Wall Street, there was a Morgan Stanley trader. He wrote this in 1997. He said, I'm getting out of this game because if I, don't, if I stay in, I'm going to go to jail, right? And he told the story... Of, he, he, he actually explains a lot about derivatives in this book, Frank Partnoy. Um, he told the story about a particular type of derivative that Morgan Stanley sold to Japanese banks after Bearings Bank went under in 1995, which was to hide losses. And they, it was called the MX missile, but he compared it to... We, we've got a lovely uh, animation of this. He compared it to a, a, um, a pot of gold, Craig, worth $100. Mm-hmm. And he says if the pot of gold is 90% real gold and 10%... Uh, sorry... Yeah, the pot of gold is 90%, uh, it's, sorry, it's 50-50, half, half real, half fool's gold. The real gold's worth $90. The fool's gold is worth $10. Now, the way you can hide losses with, with a user derivatives, he says you, what you do is you just mark down each half as $50 each. So you're, you're artificially lowering the value of the real gold and artificially raising the value of the fool's gold. Then you sell the real gold for what it's worth, $90, but you get to book a $40 profit. And suddenly you got a profit out of nothing, right? But he said, you can do this indefinitely as long as you never sell, sell the fool's gold component because then you'll be booking a big loss, right? And this is how, this was a particular type of derivative that Morgan Stanley helped Japanese banks with. And of course, that ended up in a big scandal in Japan. So this is the sort of stuff that can go on. And the problem with derivatives is they never get audited. There's no supervision for it. They're allowed to be kept off balance sheet. Um, We have uh, another development in this area, which we'll just go through briefly, whereas in the United States, the government there has just scrapped what's called the Volcker Rule, which was a rule brought in after the global financial crisis. And the rule says, the the rule had different aspects of it, but one of them was, okay, derivatives caused this crisis. You're going to have to keep some money set aside against your derivatives trades in case they go bad. And now the US government has just said to the US banks, don't worry about that. Don't hold any money against your derivatives. Just keep lending as much as you like. Absolute insanity in this area. So this is a crazy area. Um, Craig, it relates to a long-standing campaign we've been on, and it just proves that more than ever why it's needed. 
which is Glass-Steagall, yeah. breaking up the banks. Well, Robbie, you know, banking should be boring. Yep. I just, this is the problem, is that banking is no longer boring, it's full of speculation and it's very dangerous. The role of the banks is to support the economy, right? And we say it has to support the physical economy. It should, they should be in a responsible role for the emission of credit into the economy. Now, what you've got is this massive speculation. You don't see that role very much at all, if at all, these days. So what, you've got to, what we do with the Glass-Steagall is say we have to have a banking separation. We have to have this normal, boring commercial banking or retail banking operation separated out from all this investment banking, you know, uh, and, and speculative stuff so that we actually have a safe banking, uh, op um, you know, operation. And, and the rule the of thumb is deposits. Banks with deposits have to be the boring banks. Exactly. And the whole point of the Glass-Steagall is to make that separation. And it's a political decision, Robbie. This is not a financial decision. It's happened in the past. I mean, China has a significant amount of Glass-Steagall right now, which most you know, some of the viewers may not like to hear. But the, the fact is that the role of government is not to be subservient to banks. It's the other way around. The the the, and we saw this in World War II where the curtain shifted government actually had to take the private banks on and control them. Otherwise, there would have been all sorts of speculative activity and blowing out the economy because of the scarcities that came about during the war. So what you have to do is introduce... We've written legislation. It's in our, uh, what we call our Time for Glass-Steagall Banking Separation and National Bank Manual. It's available for, you know, if people want to ring in for it. Now, the point is that this legislation will stabilise the banking system. And that's what we need. And, and it, without that, there's, this is endless, Robbie. Well, this, it's because, when you say without it, it's because we don't have it that we actually have bail-in. Yeah. Right? Instead of making, instead of after the global financial crisis breaking the banks up to make them safe, they said, oh, we'll come up with a way where you can just take the banks, we'll take the banks' customers' money to cover their losses when they make losses. Let them keep gambling. And look, and coming out of COVID-19, the solution here is massive investment into large-scale infrastructure, funding the real, uh, real, economy. real economy, real physical economy, so that you have real good jobs. Now, you're not going to get that when you've got banks that are, uh, you know, completely and utterly addicted to these things called derivatives because it's a culture. Yep. It's, a, it's an investment banking, merchant banking culture that's infected the commercial, boring banking side of things. Got to get rid of it. It's clear as day. It's a political fight. And that's why we ask people to join us and to get involved in all that different campaigns because at the end of the day, this is what we're fighting for, bank but, separation. Thanks, Craig. Let's take a break. Welcome back to the Citizens Report, where we're discussing banks on a gambling binge with our deposits. Now, Craig, speaking of fraud, I wanted to highlight a scandal that's just erupted in, the, in Europe, especially in Germany, where a company has collapsed called Wirecard. Um, now, this, has been, this scandal has been compared to the collapse of Enron in 2001, which was a massive, it was a you know, record bankruptcy at the time. Um, the, the main reason why, though, is how, is how this company relates to um, the auditing fiasco that we keep talking about, where auditors aren't doing their job, right? There's, big, there's four big auditors in the world that audit most of the world's corporations, and they're crook, right? They're crooked as, as dog's hind legs, and they've got to be broken up too, um, along the lines of Gar Steagall. Now, Wirecard is a cashless payments uh, Leader, it's it's so it's sort of a pioneer. It started in 1999. It's a pioneer in the in the in the, the rush to to a cashless society, really, right? Um, and but what it's shown, what this it's 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 collapsed um, 
uh, because of, of this massive fraud. And it actually illustrates that, um, uh, you know, even if you are cashless, there can still be fraud and money laundering, yeah. right? And this, was, this is an important point because the Black Economy Task Force here in Australia, which tried to ram through this, this cash ban here in Australia, was saying, oh, we've got to, we've got to ban cash because of fraud and money laundering. Right, especially money laundering and tax evasion. Well, this, this, this particular company shows um, that's irrelevant. They'll find a way to do it anyway, and it's just been caught out. Um, the, the gist of it is Wirecard for a number of years claimed they had three billion, equivalent of three billion Australian dollars or nearly two billion euro in the Philippines, right? And so when the auditors, Ernst & Young, kept auditing the company, um, it's their job to make sure money is where it said it is because it's the, Wirecard was claiming it was very profitable and there's supposed to be cash there to prove it. Oh, where's the cash? Oh, it's in the Philippines bank, right? And they never checked. They, they would get, they would get um, uh, screenshots of, of uh, supposed statements sent to them and never actually bothered to, to properly check that the money was there. When they finally did check, the money wasn't there. Um, and uh, Wirecard's collapsed on the back of that. Um, it's, it's, it's caused this massive fiasco, uh, you know, chaos in, in, in the European financial system for a number of days there. People with cashless cards that were connected to this weren't able to use it. And that, that, that also applied to a lot of very vulnerable people, right, that, um, you know, tended to use these. They'd be given them for welfare and stuff like that. Um, so now what you have in Germany is a call, like we've long been saying, to break up the big four orders, right? And, and um, we, we've been part of this campaign for the last few years, and you, viewers might remember we put up a bill that Bob Catter introduced back in December along these lines, but the, specific, the specifics of that bill was to replace the big four auditors with a government auditor for the banks because these auditors don't do their job, right? And they're, 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 they, they, they're in business with the banks, and so they, they, never, they never check them properly, and you can have scandals like this. And it's one thing for this to happen with a company like Wirecard, the question is, can it, would it happen as well with, what if they did the same thing with the big four, with, with the major banks and a, prob, and, a, and a problem erupted there, such as happened in America in 2008 with the global financial crisis? Yeah, this is, Robbie, this gets to the core of the issue here. What is the role of government? Isn't it not to protect the people, to act on behalf of the people? Here you have private auditor firms, private banking system, yep. all with a private profit motive to make money. Money has become the so-called king and therefore corruption has easily, it just, it's nothing like the, you know, just like the prohibition era, you know, with booze and stuff. I mean, you make something... But it's all self-regulating now, Craig. It's the corrupt. government doesn't need to do any of this stuff, apparently. Right. I mean, the point is that it is self-regulating. It means the corruption is self-regulating. Yeah. It can continue. <laughs> yeah. it, uh, and, you know, corruption is going to flourish unless there is someone that can oversee it. And even governments get into corruption too. That's true. But there are checks and balances if the intention is there for the government to actually act on the interests of the people. Act in the interest well, one of, of the people. one of the particular case, uh, issues in the German case is the the regulator in Germany admitted that um, it, it's fallen down on the job, but part of its excuse was it was taking the the fact that the auditor was signing off on this, he accepted those audits, yeah. right? And this is what they've got. To, they've got to, the after the global financial crisis, Craig, you remember um, the ratings agencies got scrutinised, the banks got scrutinised, but the auditors did not. And they were just as much a part of the problem. And now, in the last few years, there's been a lot more uh, attention on that. And this is mm -hmm. another example. Um, I think the last point I wanted to make about it is Australians should look closely at the, at the push for cashlessness here, including the cashless welfare card that, that this company India is ramming down the throats of welfare recipients. 
right? Because they can all have lots of problems that can be hidden in these ways. Um, all right, let's take a break and we'll, when we come back, we'll talk about who owns the farmland in Australia. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. Finally, who owns Australia's farmland? And Craig, I single out this issue as the issue over which there's more hysteria in Australia based on complete disinformation, mm -hmm. which is why we're going to do a segment on it, just because people need to see the facts, right? And, and when you see the facts, ask yourself, why are you being told the opposite? And you are being told the opposite. You know, papers like the Daily Mail run non-stop headlines about the Chinese buying up Australia wholesale, the Chinese are the biggest buyers of everything, blah, blah, blah. Most Australians somehow think China's the biggest foreign investor in Australia. There's a federal MP, George Christensen, who's not the worst of them. <laughs> He's got a website up there in Queensland that says China, Communist China is the biggest investor in Australia. It's not even close. So we've shown the other figures that in overall terms, the Chinese are the 10th largest investors in Australia. They only have 2% of the total foreign investment slice of Australia, whereas the, the, the Americans have 25%, the Brits have 17%. So the Brits and Americans between them have $1.5 trillion of Australia. China has $78 billion of Australia, right? There's no, you know, you just say, why on earth are people so, by comparison, freaked out about this? The one area, though, the Chinese did seem to be big in was farmland. And so have a look at this graph here, which is, this shows you total farmland in Australia and who owns it. And of course, the biggest part is, the, is Australia itself. And then that, that pie with the different colours is the foreign ownership of farmland, and the red, the red slice there is Chinese, China's share, right? And that's about um, 9 million hectares, and they, they're kind of, they vie with the British for the, the, the top ownership of Australia. Um, now, this one, though, the details are important here. So just this, this next chart shows that slice of the pie as its own pie. And so you can see um, the British are 10.2 uh, million hectares, not the Chinese 9.2 million hectares, and um, the other is 23.8 million hectares. However, when you look at the details, it's quite interesting. 91% of what China owns in Australian land is actually leasehold land, not freehold land. So that's not quite the same as proper ownership, right? 91%, almost all of, all of it is leasehold. And when, if you just look at freehold land, what you see there in this chart is that it's the Dutch actually that own the most of freehold land, then the Americans, then the British, and Chinese are number four as, as owners of freehold land. But come back to the, the first chart now. Um, and the other interesting fact about that Chinese slice of total Australian land is that 87% of, of China's total holdings in Australia is its share of actually a company owned by Gina Reinhart. And China has a minority stake. So Gina Reinhart's beef company has a massive land holding in Australia. China has a one-third stake in that company. That's counted in the foreign investment figures as Chinese land. Oh. It's not even close to a controlling interest. So if you take that out, that which Gina Reinhart has owned 66%, China has is a tiny, even, even a tiny foreign investor in land. Right? It does not match the hysteria that is generated all the time. And the reason I single this out is because this is one of the issues that, that gets constantly cited as the reason Australians have changed their view of China in, in opinion polls. And now, of course, it's just everything about China is completely uh, weaponised and there's total hysteria and we're just, we've just signed up to a huge weapons deal, etc., because of the China threat. 
so much is based on disinformation, and I just want the viewers to, to ask themselves the question, why, if you didn't know this, why didn't you know it? Why does someone want you to think of something that's not true? So with that in mind, Craig, um, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the yeah. Citizens Report. You're welcome. And thanks to the viewer for uh, tuning in. Make your submission to the Senate inquiry straight away, please.